check off 40 stories in I think 24 hours. To be honest, I was really overwhelmed actually. <laughs> talking, to reading and talking to the women that called me and writing down their stories. And after sitting with those stories for a while and seeing the themes in the stories, that's when I decided to make it into something bigger. Hi, this is Alexandria from Sacramento, California. You're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast that helps you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Thanks for joining us and Sonia Dreisler for a dive into her path from executive assistant to CEO. Sonia also shares the story behind her Do Better series and the importance of listening to people's stories. Up next, you'll learn about sustainable investing and what values-based investors most often do in volatile markets. But first, this episode is sponsored by Aging and Longevity have Changed Financial Planning, and creating an intentional plan for long-term care is more than a sale. It's a discussion about health, lifestyle, family, and how your clients want to spend their final years. With Ash Brokerage as your partner, you don't need to navigate it alone. From starting the conversation to identifying clients and determining the source of funding, they make it easy. When it comes to long-term care, just ask. Give them a call at 1-800-589-3000 and ask for the long-term care team, or visit them at ashbrokerage.com. Well, thanks for joining us today, Sonia. So you have, there's so many interesting things about your story and what we're going to be diving into from the Do Better series that you just started to looking at the ESG space and really understanding like, what is that and what is the future of ESG? But before we dive into all that, I'm curious on what your background is or your career path within financial planning. So how did you get first get introduced into financial services or financial planning? Well, how I first got introduced is I grew up with it. My dad is a financial planner still, and he was one of the first financial planners to um, pair financial planning with socially responsible investing. And so, um, I come from a I come from a line of ESG and SRI uh, family. <laughs> well, that's how I first got introduced, but how I first started actually working in it. I was living in San Francisco with my with my now husband, then boyfriend, and we had moved here from LA. It was not a good time to be looking for a job in San Francisco. It was post.com bust. So there wasn't a lot of work here in my field of choice, which was copy editing. I took an interview with the CEO of a broker dealer. And an independent broker dealer and RIA based here in San Francisco. And I interviewed to be her executive assistant and we hit it off immediately. And she offered me a job on the spot. And I told her, I was very honest. I said, this sounds like a good job, but I really want to be honest with you. This is not the field I see myself working in. And she asked me to make a one year commitment and I did. I made a one-year commitment, and I was there for 13 years. <laughs> uh, she was a really great first boss for me because she really kind of threw me into the deep end and expected me to learn on the job, but also provided me with the resources I needed to do that learning. So one of the first things she had me do was be the liaison for performance reporting between our 40 advisors, most of whom were financial planners as well as investment advisors, um, be the liaison for performance reporting between them and Advent back office services. And so if you know anything about performance reporting, you know, it's very complicated and, and was even, you know, 
15, 20 years ago, maybe more so. And because of less, less con- user control over the information and the reporting. And I didn't, I really didn't know anything about financial services except for basic personal finance stuff. I didn't know about investments. So hearing somebody tell me that, you know, the dividend, the the spinoff or the dividend or the equity, all these different terms, I didn't know them. I was constantly on Investopedia trying to figure things (laughs) out and uh, learning. And I asked, asking my boss for help and I did all right. I learned really quickly on the job and I did well there. And maybe because of my lack of financial services experience had a different perspective and I could, I could see where there were challenges and was able to redesign some of our processes. And so I think once my boss saw me do that one time, she thought, well, let's have her do that again. And so she ended up over many years moving me from uh, project to project and department to department, um, um, redesigning our processes and procedures, making things run more efficiently and so it was a very natural fit when maybe, I think maybe seven years in, she made me our chief operating officer. I did that for about five years. And then when the CEO, it was a different CEO by then, but when he left unexpectedly for another role, I threw my hat in the, in the ring when the board was doing an executive search for that CEO role and I got it. So it was just this amazing um, it was amazing to sit in the same seat as the person who hired me and be the CEO at the same firm where I had started uh, many years before as the exec- as an executive assistant. And and that sounds very lovely and like a very straight path in retrospect, but it leaves off all the other things I tried and wasn't good at. <laughs> <laughs> or didn't maybe maybe I should better say I just didn't didn't enjoy, including actually being a financial planner during oh gosh, I don't remember exactly at what point in that career path I decided I would try uh, that maybe I should be a financial planner and financial advisor. There were a lot of good opportunities for me to partner with some of our advisors. And so I went to San Francisco State, had a College of Extended Learning certificate program for financial planning. So I took that program and then sat for the CFP exam and got my CFP certification. I was so proud of my <laughs> three letters and the little the little R with the circle <laughs> on my business card. And I tried it and I was okay at it. I just didn't really enjoy it. I didn't really enjoy the planning or any of the client facing stuff and being able to do that at the same time as my other job where I was chief operating officer for broker dealer and RIA, I could see, I can sort of compare the two and see that I really enjoyed working inside the business, helping um, financial advisors and financial services companies was a much better fit for my skills than serving individual clients. So often we talk about career paths within financial planning and we assume that the end goal is to be a financial planner. And that's not always the case. And I think this is such a neat story of how you can still have an impact and you can still have a lot of influence 
um, but not be like the true traditional financial planner. Yeah. Yeah. And just recently, actually a couple months ago, I gave up my CFP designation. I kept it for years, even though I wasn't planning. I I thought that the education was really good. Having the credentials, especially as a young woman in financial services, where I often wasn't given the benefit of the doubt that I was as smart or capable as my you know, male counterparts, having those credentials on my business card was very helpful. And I only recently decided to give, give up the designation. And it was kind of a sad, but watershed moment for me. Mm. I actually wrote about it for financial planning magazine and uh, you can, you can find it. It's on their website. And we'll have it including the show notes. Great. Including a picture of me studying for the exam in 2008 with my, one of my cats on my, (laughs) on my study materials. It's almost this rite of passage of, of having to put all that work into that one exam, isn't it? Ugh. Oh my gosh, yes. And it was so hard. And I was studying during, I took the exam November of 2008. So the sort of cram course that I took the in the month before the week-long cram course was during one of the most volatile markets. It was in October of 2008. And it was really an extraordinary time to be thinking about a career in financial services. So. I know you for being in that ESG SRI space. So when you were at that, when you were at the broker dealer and, you know, from the executive assistant to the CEO, was that where you really learned about that and got exposure to that? Or what's really sparked your interest in that? Of course, I knew about it because that's what my dad did. And then a good portion of the advisors at our firm did that. It was one of our niches as a firm. So yes, I learned about it there and had a developed network in the space because of my work at that firm. And it's one of the things that kind of kept me in financial services, even though financial services was not the field that I thought I would be in. It's the part being able to challenge the way that finance is supposed to be and influence the direction of and thinking of mainstream financial services for social and environmental good is a piece of what kept me in and what appealed to me. It kept me interested in, in doing, being in financial services and driving change through a pretty traditional field. So tell me what is ESG and SRI, like what is this for somebody who's never heard of this before? Yeah, that's a good question. And we have, I mean, financial services in general has a huge vocabulary hurdle for anybody to learn. And sustainable ESG impact, SRI investing, we have additional vocabulary hurdles. So I'm going to try to be brief here and explain big picture and then what each of those terms mean because. Although the, you've heard me just kind of throw them all around, and many people do throw them all around, including um, media, kind of conflates all of those things. They're actually different types of investing, and they're different. They have different meanings. It's helpful to know them. So, big picture, sustainable investing matches um, or creates portfolios that are aligned with a particular set of 
values. And those might be environmental values or social values or religious values or keeping your money invested in your community type values. There's a wide range and there's a wide range of possibilities of investing towards those values. Some of the terminology that we use, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And so it's a type of data. And I want to make that clear because often we hear, you know, about an ESG fund and we assume that it's maybe fossil fuel free or has an environmental focus. But really what it means is that the manager of that fund is using this type of data and they may be using it in a variety of different ways. ESG data is just business data in each of the three categories, environmental, social, and governance. And that data is used in tandem with traditional financial metrics to more deeply understand the risks and opportunities an investable company faces. Often, ESG data is referred to as non-balance sheet risk, but as an unexpected incident happens, it can often move that um, non-balance sheet risk straight onto the balance sheet, right? So the key takeaway here is remember that ESG is data and how each manager uses that data varies really widely, which is why, for example, you could see Exxon in an ESG fund. Because if you're if the manager, the investment manager is looking for companies with the best, say, governance data in each category, including um, oil and gas, Exxon might be the top pick. Conversely, another manager could use ESG data to screen out all oil and gas companies. So it's just another form of data. And I want people to really remember that. SRI is a different term. It usually stands for socially responsible investing. Some people have changed that and now it stands for new words, which I won't get into because I think that's even more confusing. (laughs) But typically the, the key takeaway where ESG is data is that SRI expresses values. And so interestingly, SRI has historical roots in investing and divesting according to religious values, and it grew to include expressing secular values as well, historically through divesting, choosing not to own or selling existing ownership. Many SRI funds pair divesting and investing with shareholder engagement, in which groups of shareholders converse with company management about advancing social or environmental good within the company or the communities affected by the company's business. And then they can make that conversation more public through the shareholder voting process. ESG data can inform SRI portfolios. A portfolio manager can use ESG data to create a portfolio that matches the values that the fund expresses or the or a client expresses if it's for a personalized portfolio. There's a couple other terms, impact investing. The key take, I'll go through these more quickly. The key takeaway is that impact investing is investing in companies with intention to do good. Although often you'll see impact investing used as a catch-all term for everything. Uh, And sustainable investing is a very widely used term and it's a bit of a mixed bag because it can mean any combination of the terms I've already said. 
And it's the term that Morningstar uses in its rating system. So the word is very common in the mutual fund and ETF lexicon. Now, there's a whole secondary list of vocabulary terms like green investing, local investing, opportunity zones, and I don't want to get into those here, but I do have a ton of resources. I write and speak on this topic to try to provide clarity regularly, and I'm happy to point you to both videos and written descriptions of these for your show notes in case that's helpful. Yep. No, that would be great. We'd love to love to share that. So it's really interesting looking at this idea of, I mean, as financial planners, investing is a big piece of a lot of our clients' financial plan in their, in their financial picture. And so this idea of doing good with the investments, are you finding that that's something that clients are asking for more and more? Ah, that's a good question. Surveys show that clients do want investments that match their values or sustainable investments. The interesting thing about the surveys, though, for example, the most recent Morgan Stanley does a study every two years and the 2019 version said that 85 percent of all investors surveyed, not just like, you know, coastal millennial women or whatever the stereotype is for this type of investing, all investors are interested in at least learning more about sustainable investing and maybe, you know, very interested in investing in it. Um, And that's up from, that's up 10 percentage points. It was 75% in 2017. So yes, they are interested, but the really key piece of those studies is that before the interviewer conducts the study, they explain to the investor or client what sustainable investing is and what it means. And so once clients and investors are educated and they understand that this is available, yes, they are interested and yes, they want it. But not all clients know about it or understand the terminology. So it's really up to the advisors to explain that this is an option available to clients and to educate them. And an an example I give often is that, you know, you would not expect most clients to come in and ask for, say, a 10% allocation to emerging markets, right? It's our, you know, it's financial planners and financial advisors job to educate the client on what their options are and, and what's the best fit for their financial needs. And this falls in that category as well. So it's really important for advisors to be educated and understand the space so that they can educate their clients as well, partly so that another advisor doesn't do that first. You know, as you were talking about the different SRIs and in, in, in ESG, kind of the angles that people can take on that. Do you find that for every client, it's like a customized approach with like different funds and different intention behind that? Or do you find that practices have like the kind of the same, you know, I have kind of my portfolio that I use with clients. Like, Mm -hmm. do you find that it's, it's customized on the client level or the advisor level or maybe both? It's so it, it depends. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) of course. Like at all investing, it's the more, And like all investing, the more money a client has to invest, the easier it is to customize. The advice I give to advisors is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good here, though. You know, just because you can't customize to the exact values of your client, it doesn't mean you can't get a lot closer. And you 
and you can get a lot closer than say, you know, a traditional fund. And, and even just having that conversation with, with the client about what their values are and trying to get closer to them with their portfolio can be a deeply meaningful conversation and a way to connect with your clients about more than just finances. And financial planners are pretty good at having these conversations already because they're usually talking, uh, you know, about large, you know, personal goals and things that are more than just money. And this is another one of those conversations that can help you connect more deeply with your clients. And if your clients are more deeply connected to their investments themselves, there is some data that shows that those clients are less likely to sell in a volatile market. They're more likely to stay the course, stay invested. I definitely grew up with the you know, the diversification and, and, you know, you invest in all the different companies for the diversification. And how does that, how do you talk to an, uh, an advisor who is really has that mentality of you just invest in everything and then you get, you know, you get the returns. Really, you're n- never going to be investing in every single company, right? You're going to make some choices about where you're investing co- uh, country wise or, you know, cap wise. And this is just another one of those decisions. Many of the ESG and SRI versions of index funds have a pretty, they, they track pretty closely to the index. So that is possible if that is your theory of investing. Although there's certainly a school of thought in the SRI community that, um, that to chain for the, I would say maybe more um, the people looking for more dramatic change. There's a school of thought that says that if, how can we make dramatic change while we're tracking to an index that's reflective of a broken economy? Mm, interesting. Yeah. In fact, I did a whole series last year. Before I wrote the Do Better series, I was working on a series where I interviewed leaders in the sustainable investing space about whether or not you can have impact while indexing. And so there's six, there's a six part series on my, on my website. That was a fascinating series to write. And because people feel very strongly on one side or the other, and I got both perspectives that yes, absolutely. And uh, no, absolutely not. (laughs) You know, I think there's sometimes this assumption that to invest with SRI or ESG means that you're going to be giving up returns. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that's true? Like, is there a trade-off on that or is that just a misnomer? No, not any, not anymore. The, there's many studies showing that you're not giving up returns. That, in fact, in the last, in this most recent in this most recent um, market downturn, the the sustainable funds have, on average, out outperformed their traditional peers. I'm happy to send you the the research I read about that. John Hale of Morningstar writes about this frequently on his on his blog, and has has all the data to to back that up. 
Well, and it's just so exciting, you know, especially talking to new planners who are getting in. This is such a great place to even be able to differentiate yourself and be able to be articulate and and bring value to the firm that you're working in. Yeah, absolutely. And then back to the performance question, I think one of the things that's really important here to to reiterate, I know I said it already, is that having clients that are connected to their portfolios around more than just how much money it's making when they're connected around values, it tends to either, I don't know if it attracts or produces more resilient investors, but there's definitely a correlation between folks invested with their values and their willingness to stay when the market is volatile, to stay invested while the market is volatile. So, and that resilience is more, I would argue that resilience is more important than any funds performance numbers, right? Because you know, as a planner, the most important thing to a, to an individual client's portfolio performance is when they invested, when they bought, when they sold, right? And when they hopefully didn't, uh, you know, sell at the bottom because they were panicked and then buy at the top when they felt better about it, right? We've seen clients do that before. And that is far more important to an individual's meeting an individual's financial goals and their individual portfolio return. It's more important than the performance of any underlying fund, right? Yeah. Yep. And so we'll definitely link out to your website and in the show notes. If somebody's interested or wanting to know more, we'll definitely connect them to, to the resources that you have on them. Yeah. And if they're wanting to learn more, I have a um, I have a newsletter that I write every week. It's not salesy. It's just educational. Uh, and it's a really great way for people who want to take five to 10 minutes every week to learn a little bit more about, about this type of investing. And if they're listening to a podcast, they're probably on their phone. So the easiest way to sign up from your phone is to text the word solutions to 33777. And also there's links on my website. One of the things where you really got a lot of attention in this past year was your Do Better series. And so I'm curious, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about what that is, um, but what inspired you to to do this series? Yeah, I can put my finger on when I really started to think about the article that led to the series, but I think it goes back further than that. I think I've been, you know, my entire career has led to this. I've seen and experienced uh, and known about from friends the harassment, assault, and discrimination that women in financial services face. And so there's a couple things that I can kind of pinpoint that are more <laughs> that are more specific than that. And the first is um, a little more than a year ago, I was reading an article, and I had read maybe a couple of articles that showed the statistics about harassment and assault in the industry and discrimination. And it showed the statistics about perception and men's perception of the prevalence of harassment and women's perception of the prevalence of harassment and discrimination. And the delta between those two was huge. <laughs> So, for example, one of the studies that I, or the surveys that I cite, I think in the introduction to the series, showed that only 4% of men thought it was a big problem, right? And it, it's, a, it's a much bigger problem than that. And if these surveys, and I started thinking, if these surveys come out every 
you know, every year or so. And women keep saying that this is a big problem. And men presumably read that and don't believe them because, because the, the stats about men are not increasing. They are not thinking that, you know, that the prevalence is high because women say it's high. And so the, the reason I think that is is because most men are not, they are not harassing women. They're not directly discriminating and they are not witnessing it. So there's no way for them to know. And so that's sort of one piece of it. And then on the, the women's side, I know that when I get together with women in who've worked in the field for at least a few years, we often like immediately start sharing stories of, you know, pay discrimination or harassment or make sure not to get into the elevator with that guy. He's dangerous. Those kinds of things. We share them with each other, but we don't share them publicly because it's dangerous for us. It can be dangerous for our careers. It can be dangerous for our personal safety. For a number of reasons, we do not share these stories publicly. And so I started thinking, well, no wonder the men's ideas about harassment don't change. They don't know what's happening. And statistics don't change people's minds. Experiences do. And the closest we can get to experiences without experiencing them is, is stories, hearing hearing about other people's experiences, right? So I thought, how, how can I share that insight with men so that they'll be more aware and understanding and be able to be better, more active allies. So I, I set out to write an article about why we don't share our stories, right? The personal and professional and safety reasons that we do not share. And so I put out a call on social media and in my newsletter asking if anybody wanted to share, if any women wanted to share their stories of harassment, assault, or discrimination with me, and that I would share them anonymously on their behalf. And I wanted to get another one or two stories to write my article so that the article wouldn't be about me, but be about the industry more generally. And so expecting one or two stories, I put this caught and I got 40 stories in, I think, 24 hours. So <laughs> I realized there was something much more here to do. And I didn't know at first what to do. To be honest, I was really overwhelmed, actually, <laughs> talking the reading and talking to the women that called me and writing down their stories. And it, the, the stories were scary and terrible. And so I had to just kind of take it in at first. And that's, and after sitting with those stories for a while and seeing the themes in the stories, that's when I decided to uh, make it into something bigger, into a series. And so this Do Better series, what are the themes that you found in the stories that people were sharing? Yeah. So I, I did find some themes and I split the first. So there's an introduction. Um, there's an introduction to the series. And then the, the following six articles are share by theme. And I don't have them in front of me, but off the top of my head, I can think of a few at least. Um, the number one thing that came up over and over was conferences and how they can be quite dangerous and, for women and how both harassment, physical assault, and discrimination, they all happen there. That was one theme. Another theme was that women who have another sort of intersecting 
identity are have this sort of compounded harassment that is also can also be about race or their sexual orientation or their immigration status. Uh, um, or for example, there's one from a, um, the a military spouse. And so they're dealing with not just the gender discrimination, but a secondary form of discrimination, which makes it even harder to, um, harder to address and harder to, and these things are, you cannot untangle them. They go together. That's two of them. Uh, pay discrimination, of course, and, uh, promotion discrimination. And another one was physical harassment in the office. There's a lot of weird stories of, you know, men touching women and smelling their hair. That's a, that was a common one that was kind of creepy and weird. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, A variety of those things that happens, just things that maybe one incident seems annoying, but maybe small if you hear the story of just one incident, but it's not small and often women are dealing with more than one incident. You know, it compounds over time and it's exhausting. Um, and then another another theme was it not being helpful to actually report or the women reporting and not finding that HR or management was receptive or um, even listening <laughs> And then the, the last theme, which is really sad, was the leaving, women leaving their, leaving firms because they just didn't feel safe or listened to. And to have to pause your career or take a different route in your career, not because you choose to, but because you're forced to, is a huge detriment to a long to a long-term career, having to start over, not of your choice, uh, is is a huge challenge. And it's one that we don't really talk about very much. And I suspect, I didn't write about this, but I suspect there's a lot of stories of women who opted out completely, didn't just go to a different firm or didn't just start their own firm, but they just decided not to continue working in an industry that doesn't respect them. And when we think about the numbers of, you know, close to equal amount of women entering financial services and very, very few at the top. You can see why. I hear things like that. And I immediately want to jump to what, how do we fix it? What are the solutions? <laughs> but I don't think often enough, we just sit and really listen to the stories and really sit with that and be like, what is it really telling us? And so I'm curious, you know, as you got these stories, I mean, number one, that's a heavy, that's a heavy burden to bear of having so many people tell you the, these types of stories. I'm curious, like, what did, what did you learn or what was that experience like? Or what did you learn about, about our industry or profession? Thank you for acknowledging that. It was very hard, actually. And I didn't anticipate that, partly because I didn't think I'd get so many stories. Um, and I wasn't prepared for it. And I had to sort of, I don't know, prepare partway through when I realized that it was harder on me than I expected. And I got some, I got some help, which, which, um, like some sort of mental focusing and resetting and framing help for myself, which was really good. And I took a break at one point. I just said, I'm not going to be putting these out every week. I cannot, it's too much. Um, 
And one of the things I noticed was exactly what you said, that people want to jump to solutions and they just want to fix it. And that was very, very common. And in fact, I included solutions in each article or not solutions really, but next steps, things to think about. And I did that partly because we are such a solutions focused industry, but my main ask was not even to read the solutions, was just read the stories, sit with the stories. I know they're uncomfortable. I know they're hard to read. I read them all and they aren't just stories. They're somebody's lived experience. So if you think it's hard to read them, try living with them, right? And I really wanted men to just sit with the stories and read them, respect the stories, listen to women and not jump to solutions because we can't find appropriate solutions until we understand the problem and to, until we're listening well to the people that it's impacted the most. And so, yes, there are solutions. And now in 2020, I'm ready to talk about some of those solutions. <laughs> but initially, and for people who haven't read the series yet, I just ask them to read the, read the series with an open mind and um, listen to women. You know, we talk about a lot about how do we engage with clients? How do we you know, how do we do that well? And the first step to doing it is exquisite listening. And it's that you don't jump to solutions. It's that you actually sit and like respect the story and respect the person who's telling it enough to just sit there and truly listen to it. So I I love it that, that you made that distinction about the jumping to solutions and like there are solutions, there are things that we can be doing, but there's something really important about just sitting and thinking about and, and really acknowledging what so many women and women and minorities, what they're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. And just to touch on that, I do know that this affects, um, this affects men too. And many of the same issues affect, especially affect men of color. And it's something that I think about and I try to listen to, and it's not what I wrote about, but I didn't, choose not to write about that because I don't, how should I say? I chose to focus on, on a small subject matter. In fact, one that I thought would be much smaller and then became this big thing. And I think that we do need to listen specifically to people of color um, as well, because some of these same issues come up. And if I had (laughs) infinite time and a ability and and network to, to make that happen, I would probably write the same, you know, have the same call to action on this and do a similar series and explore some of the themes that I found. Um, and I hope that that comes out, maybe somebody else will write it or maybe I can do it eventually, (laughs) but it's important. And I want to be clear that this is not in service to white women. This is in service to all women and as and women of color especially feel these problems even more deeply and in more um, challenging ways than we often do as white women. And I um, suspect that men of color are encountering some of the same problems, but I just didn't explore that in this series. One of the things that you said that stood out to me, and, and again, this is clearly I'm bringing my story into this, but you know, conferences were have been such an influential part of my career and kind of helping me make connections and helping me to level up my career and develop skills. And, and so I'm curious, I mean, I don't, 
I'm curious what you would say to the young woman who's listening to this and is just like, oh my goodness, well, should I not go to conferences now? Or I'm curious what your thoughts would be to them. Totally. And I'm with, I'm with you. I love conferences. I am a yeah. people person. Part of my career is, is speaking, which is, you know, made possible by conferences. I wouldn't be able to, you know, have that business line if it weren't for conferences. And I love it. And I love being there. I love meeting with people. And I acknowledge that there are real challenges. And in the last, you know, few months, the industry has actually made huge corrective steps collectively. So I do see promise towards change there and it will happen slower than I want it to, but it is happening. And I would say, yeah, go to the conferences, but be aware that these type of things happen, that men will likely hit on you and maybe worse. Um, read, you can read the you know series to see some of the examples. It's heartbreaking. And so go, but be aware. And I wish that we could just go and show up professionally and not have to think about our safety or bodily autonomy and just be able to think about our work and meeting people and expanding our network and the things that you're supposed to go to a conference for. But realistically, I, I do want to be honest with, you know, young women who are going to a, to a conference that this is something that you should be at least cognizant of so that you can um, be a, make, make an informed decision. And then make informed actions when you're there. And one of the things that I like to give women is a, a line that they can use if things start to feel a little weird. Like if you are at a networking event and a another a professional starts hitting on you, which is unfortunately quite common, you can say something like, hey, let's keep it professional. Okay. And that in a, you know, a kind of light tone that does not, in, which doesn't in, invite um, further conversation or um, an argument or somebody who's angry at you. It's a really tough thing to, to navigate, right? Because you don't want to alienate people that could be good for your, for your work and you don't want to embarrass yourself or them, but you need to protect your own well-being. And so that's a nice term to have handy. And then for men, they, uh, if they see something happening, men or women, if they see something happening to some, somebody else, um, there's a phrase they can use. Um, if they see something happening, that's not right. You can say, Hey, we don't do that here, which kind of shuts down the action in a friendly way. Use the term we, so that it's friendly and we're talking about, you know, our collective space and just set the expectation that, that, you know, that's not right here. We don't do that here. And let's keep it professional are two terms that I ask people to practice before they go to a conference so that they're ready to use them if they have to. And hopefully they don't have to use them because more and more conferences are addressing this from the main stage, putting in codes of conduct with um, enforcement provisions and talking about it. And I think the conferences that are willing to speak about the issue from the main stage are the ones who will find less and less prevalence of these of assault and harassment happening in their, in their venues. 
Yeah. And I know, I mean, just because I'm connected with FP, I know they've had that, I think they're in year two or three of building out a full policy around this. Yes. I remember I saw a picture of, I wasn't there, but I think I saw a picture of their first, the first time they put up a sign right at the, right at the front that said that, you know, what was not tolerated. Yep. And now it's, you know, it's just really neat to seeing how that can be integrated throughout the conference of knowing who to contact, how to get a hold of it, where to go. All of that's being communicated, which is, I think is just, it's just comforting to know that hopefully you'll never need it. But if you did, there's something there. Yeah. And I do think that talking, hopefully you never need it and you know what to do if it happens is really important. And I think the, from the talking about it publicly from the stage, having signs is a deterrent and a reminder for folks who may not realize that that is unacceptable behavior at a professional event. And, you know, I think it's so great. You had made the point earlier about how most people, like most men, aren't doing this. No, there are, but there are some that are serial harassers and most, most men do not fall in that category and they can be part of the solution. So what if, you know, we see it happening to somebody? So, yeah, if you see something happening, for example, at a conference, that's where that phrase can be really helpful that we don't do that here. And then follow up with the person who was being harassed afterwards and see if she or possibly he um, wants to report the incident and then help them in whatever way possible. Do that follow up privately. And if they do or don't want to report, respect their decision. They may have reasons that they don't want to report. So don't force it on them because you think that that's what they should do. <laughs> Can you report an incident or does that person need to be the one reporting it? I don't know. I think it probably depends on the company or on the on the conference. But I suppose that if you witness something that's clearly a, a violation of the conduct, you could, you could report it. Uh, if I would suggest checking in with the, with the affected person though. It's hard to, it's hard to say what they want without, without talking to them first. Yeah. More listening is probably my, my biggest, my biggest, um, uh, request. Uh, and then in the office, if you are a man with a woman counterpart in a similar role, you can offer to chat about salaries. I know that in the United States, we have this thing where we don't talk about money and we don't talk about what we earn, but you can be, a, but men can be a real advocate here to make sure that women are earning the same dollar amount for the same work by sharing salary information. As long as that's not prohibited at your company, it is prohibited in some companies, which is kind of wild. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For racial biases, I would try to do more learning and listening here. There's, gosh, 2050 Trailblazers is another podcast to listen to that is very informative on this aspect, especially for financial planners. And there's on that on the website for that podcast, there's a resources page that has really good guides to do more listening. And if you're white, my favorite book to like learn more and start being able to listen better and talk more fluently about race is called So You Want to Talk About Race. Um, gosh. Um, in, in one other sort of individual behavior thing is, I know, you know, we're talking about individual behavior, not systemic behavior, but asking to change the system. If you work for a big company, 
you can check your company's employment agreements and ask, ask management to consider, for example, ending forced arbitration for harassment, discrimination, and assault. That is one way to facilitate a more equitable workplace. Or if you're a supervisor or a manager and an employee reports that harassment, assault, or discrimination, take the report seriously and act accordingly. Well, one thing that I just love about your story is you saw a problem and you just did something about it. Like nobody asked you to do this. Nobody gave you permission. Um, you just saw a problem and you heard, you saw the statistic and you're like, something's, something's not right here. What can, what can I do about it? And you just did it. So I thank you for doing that. It truly is inspiring to, to hear people like you who, who are really impacting change, even though you weren't necessarily asked to do it. You just saw a need and did it. Oh, well, thank you. I'm grateful to be able to use my voice in this way. Aging and longevity have changed financial planning and creating an intentional plan for long-term care is more than a sale. It's a discussion about health, lifestyle, family, and how your clients want to spend their final years. With Ash Brokerage as your partner, you don't need to navigate it alone. From starting the conversation to identifying clients and determining the source of funding, they make it easy. When it comes to long-term care, just ask. Give them a call at 1-800-589-3000 and ask for the long-term care team or visit them at ashbrokerage.com. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate planners like you. Not only that, but there are live How We Do What We Do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession.